Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's time for another research review on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, we tackle the shoulder. We'll review three articles covering shoulder instability bracing, clavicle fractures, and the effectiveness of a thrower's injury prevention program. Time to dive into the medical literature. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have two guests to help us review the research today. Both are my colleagues at the St. Louis Children's Hospital Young Athlete Center. Dr. David Piskulik is a physical therapist and athletic trainer who graduated from Truman State University with an emphasis on athletic training, followed by obtaining his doctorate in physical therapy from Washington University in St. Louis. He became a board-certified sports clinical specialist while practicing as a sports physical therapist at Seattle Children's Hospital. He has clinical interest in overhead athletes, ACL rehabilitation, as well as other athletic and orthopedic injuries. Dr. Jeffrey Neppel is a pediatric sports medicine orthopedic surgeon who received his medical degree from and completed his orthopedic residency at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He then completed his fellowship in sports medicine at the Stedman Clinic, as well as a pediatric orthopedic fellowship at Washington University. He is a member of numerous medical societies and has clinical interest in pediatric knee disorders and research interest in young adult hip disorders and pediatric sports medicine. Welcome to the podcast, David and Jeff. Uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So we have three articles we're going to discuss today, all related to the shoulder. But I'll start off with an article that was published in Sports Health in 2020 from the Stedman Hawkins Group of the Carolinas, titled, Does Functional Bracing of the Unstable Shoulder Improve Return to Play in Scholastic Athletes? Returning the Unstable Shoulder to Play. Some background with this, the hypothesis of this study was that the use of functional bracing will improve success rates in a cohort of athletes treated non-operatively for in-season shoulder instability. They recruited 97 athletes over four years from 20 high schools in South Carolina with a history of anterior shoulder instability. They included both dislocators and those with subluxation of the shoulder, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Patients were excluded from the study if they had multidirectional instability or posterior instability, if they refused care or did not have an additional year of eligibility in sports. And then the instability episode needed to occur in sports to be eligible for the study as well. The treatment strategy was determined by the treating physician in the study. Athletes who were braced were given a Sully shoulder stabilizer. A successful outcome was defined as being able to return and complete the index and subsequent seasons in the sport of injury without surgery and without time loss due to shoulder symptoms. So Jeff, we're going to pause here for a minute. I'm curious for your practice as a shoulder surgeon and, and sports surgeon here, how often do you recommend a shoulder functional brace for shoulder instability? Yeah, I use them quite commonly, especially for those highest risk athletes, as we kind of see in this study, football players trying to get back to that current season who had a true dislocation. I don't think I use them as much in the setting of a subluxation, but in that population of football athletes, the risk is so high of another episode and the consequences of the second dislocation are so important that I do use them fairly commonly. 
Yeah, I do too. I, I was a little interested in this study and the fact that they did include the subluxers. I don't know that I've ever braced a subluxer. I, I certainly do the true dislocators. If we're talking about trying to get them back to play in season, I, I tend to do that. For sports that tend to be higher risk, and yes, football is certainly one of those. Uh, I have used it certainly in other sports as well. It just kind of depends on the person's position and sport that they're playing as whether or not it seems like it would be a reasonable opportunity to do. I have used it in some basketball players as an example, some soccer players, depending on how unstable their shoulders been in the past but but yeah football tends to be the one that i think we we wind up looking at the most and certainly in this study it was definitely the case and you know getting back to the details of the study there were 20 athletes that were braced 12 of them were dislocators and that, that was 25% of the total amount of dislocators here that used bracing so i was actually a little surprised that it was that low and then eight of the subluxators in the study or 17% of the total amount of subluxers in this uh, particular study were braced the results of the study here show that 87% successfully returned to play. And remember, so their criteria was is that in the season they were in and then the subsequent season, they did not lead to surgery or they did not have time loss from play. So that's actually pretty good if you look at this overall. In the functional brace group, 80% returned to play. And in the non-brace group, 88% successfully returned to play. So interesting that we saw a little better outcome for those that were non-braced. The football athletes, there was some bias in this group for the bracing group. 50% of the overall cohort participated in football, but 85% of those that were braced were football players. So we see a higher percentage here of the football players being braced. And there was a slight trend towards older athletes being braced more frequently than the younger athletes. Jeff, do you do you tend to stratify your bracing based on their age? I, I don't tend to do that. Yeah, I think the older age, kids are probably more likely to have those true dislocations, though, too, that all this stuff is kind of linked to higher energy and those things. But I just don't see as many when you get under the high school age, when the kids are bigger and there's more energy to pop that shoulder out. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that sentiment for sure, just looking at it. In the patients who failed of the dislocators, 22% failed, six were non-braced and five were braced. In the subluxers, 8% failed the study here and three were non-braced, one was braced. But there was no significant difference was noted between those braced or not. So when we look at the discussion, the authors talked about choosing the more functional results outcome as recurrent instability does not always equate with someone having poor function. You know, again, when we talk about looking at this, they compared their outcome measure as potentially more relevant as previous studies discussed successful non-operative treatment as 8 to 25%, and their study had a success rate of 87%. So they're arguing that we should be using something more functional here rather than necessarily did they dislocate again or did they lead to surgery? They listed limitations of the small sample size, no question, with this study. There was difficulty with measuring compliance of the brace. They did use athletic trainers to monitor their use, and they also suggested there may be some selection bias, obviously, of who used braces or not. They also noted that the older, larger individuals in their study were braced as a potential confounder as well. And again, what kind of Jeff was alluding to earlier about the, the higher force, higher velocity, that would make probably a little bit more sense as far as who we may be biased in our clinics to brace. So I think a couple things we can talk about here. I mean, obviously, it was a small study, so we have to kind of take that with a little grain of salt here. I'm kind of curious for either of your thoughts as far as including the subluxers in here instead of true dislocators. Again, I, I, I was a little surprised that they had that group in here, and I don't know how that plays out. I mean, we really didn't see any difference in the results here, but I, I don't know that I necessarily push any of the subluxers or the ones that I think have just subluxed into bracing. Any, yeah, any yeah I think that's a good a good comment. I think, I mean, this is a small study, probably unfunded, done at a 20 high schools that really is a good step 
forward. I think they probably included subluxers to get more numbers. That really is it hurts your study if you're too small. But I think future studies should really look at this in a larger scale. I think there's almost a hidden message here that's also more important is that many of these athletes, 80 plus percent, made it through that season and the next season without loss of time. There are many people out there who are advocating fixing all these athletes after a first-time dislocation, and that's based on collegiate data or uh, military data that, just like many areas in orthopedics, maybe doesn't apply to our adolescent patients. So that's a great prospective number to put out there that we can tell our patients, I think, uh, with brace or no brace, the number's pretty similar. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I like the thought of them going to more of a functional outcome rather than necessarily how it's been looked at before with this for failures. I think that's really where we need to look at this in terms of just overall. I mean, when we've talked about this on our podcast before, we talked about the Moon and Mars study groups and how they were really looking at kind of truly functional outcome measures as far as a way to determining the success of a surgery and how someone functions. And really the goal for our athletes when we're letting them go back to play is are they able to get back to play and do they lose any time? I mean, it makes a lot of sense when we're looking at that for an outcome measure, no question. Do you think with a study like this, like considering football, I know just with my experiences as an athletic trainer, more of the considerations of trying to have some type of bracing for getting them back to play, there was consideration made was that player skilled or non-skilled position. So in the non-skilled positions, you know, you needed more stability with blocking, but sometimes these braces don't allow for an adequate amount of function for more of the skilled positions. Do you guys find that with your experiences and working with football teams in the past that you're finding any differences in dealing with a skilled or non-skilled football position player? Yeah, I think it makes it, it makes a huge difference here. I think they use the solely kind of classic brace across the board. But what a lineman needs or can tolerate for restriction, I think, is much different than what a wide receiver might need. So I think we have braces now that can dial that in a little bit to give them much as they can tolerate because if that kid doesn't like wearing that brace it's going to be in the locker room at halftime when we're looking at the study i did not see anywhere in the study where they described what was the description of the failures they just said failures they didn't say which ones actually led to surgery or which ones just had time loss or both did you do you guys I, i don't know if i overlooked that or i didn't see anything here that talked about that yeah, I agree. And I think they don't quite get into those details. And then you'd love to see a little bit more of a patient reported outcome metric as well to know, yeah, are these kids that went on to surgery or just missing time or what the deal is? I think that is a little limitation of that outcome assessment. I think all of us realize and we will acknowledge that we do have some issues. There there could be some issues with this study as far as where is there truly failures the way they define it. I mean, obviously they're looking at time loss and did they go to surgery? But, you know, I think a lot of studies have looked at, have they had recurrent instability episodes or dislocation episodes? And I I wonder a little bit when we talk about, especially for some of our football players, especially, was there some maybe not reporting of episodes that were happening because of a desire to continue to play? We know that oftentimes with the subsequent episodes, they don't seem to be as bad for a lot of these patients. They don't lose as much function as the first time dislocation. So I'd be curious a little bit if there was any of that that happened in this study at all. Yeah, I bet there is some of that. Some of that washes out, though, because I think by the time it starts to happen a second or third time, odds are it's going to happen in that next year and a half during a game or during a practice. So that that's probably true and hard to avoid, but it probably eventually shows up over a year and a half period. Because by the time you're done, many of those kids are maybe done with their football career. They're moving on to things that if you can get, get them through a year and a half without the second dislocation, that's a really significant achievement. 
And Jeff, just as a surgeon, I'm curious of your approach to the first time dislocator with the comments that you made before about the push. You know, there there is a lot of push by some surgeons to fix these kids after their first time dislocation. I've always kind of explained it to families in my office that we all, all, all three of us, we live in Missouri. So I say, because we're in the show me state, you got to show me that it's going to dislocate again before I send you on to the surgeon to talk about fixing it. But I'm curious your approach to these patients. Yeah, I, I view it very similar to patellar instability that the, you mean the first time happens, hopefully there's no major damage that forces us to do surgery. If that's not the case, avoiding that second time is, is, is so important. Pushing to operate on all of those athletes to have a reliable outcome ends up operating on a large number of kids that don't need surgery in the first place. So until we have really good literature to have really good predictive algorithms to identify those worst cases where first-time intervention really makes sense. I think it's hard to uh, push that because sort of surgery, surgery, they can have a bad outcome or something happen. Even though these are pretty reliable surgeries, it's still a significant undertaking that you'd like to avoid. As we wrap up this study, you know, I, I would say, I mean, it's a it's a decent study in the sense that it, it kind of gives us a different way of thinking about this, and and it does let us look at things in terms of the functional bracing. And you know, obviously, we didn't really see a big difference between the bracers versus the non bracers, and ultimately, what happened to them over the next season and a half. But but I think it certainly is a worthwhile conversation to have of how we look at our outcome measures and at least you know, certainly moving the needle forward a little bit as far as how we may need to look at this and a kind of a stepping point for future studies. Any other last comments from either of you about this particular study? Yeah, I think it's a great first step. And and so often some of the most common things we don't have good evidence on, and this is maybe a step in the right direction to five years from now have much better evidence for a common situation. Again, more and more surgery happening in this situation, somewhat similar to what we'll talk about in clavicles with maybe not the evidence to show that it's really needed. And I think also with looking ahead with some of the other articles we're going to be discussing today, knowing that are these dislocations or subluxations presenting with other confounding variables, such as is there a hill sacs lesion that would be indicating that there is going to be more gross instability for that athlete due to possible injury of other soft tissues in that area. And I don't think those considerations were really made with this article, but it really does start at least a good conversation in deciding what direction do you want to go in and how can you better determine severity of an injury to help determine what type of bracing is going to be helpful, if it will be helpful at all, and then the prognosis for those patients for being able to return to play or take time out. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will continue our review of some recent research articles focused on the pediatric shoulder. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. 
Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. We are back with Dr. Jeffrey Neppel and Dr. David Piskulik from the Young Athlete Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and we're taking on the shoulder today in our research review. We'll move on to our next article that comes from the Waseda University in Japan, published in AJSM in 2019, titled Throwing Injuries in Youth Baseball Players, Can a Prevention Program Help? Just a little brief background here. This was a randomized controlled trial that randomized 16 baseball teams into four blocks of four teams, and they were divided into an intervention or they were part of the control group. And I'm going to actually have David summarize this study for us. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Halstead. So as you mentioned, the study was done in Japan over 16 baseball teams, and it included 237 players aged 9 to 11. So a really young intervention group. And the way this was divided was they had 117 players in an intervention group and 120 players in a control group. The intervention group performed this exercise program, and it was titled the Modified Yokohama Baseball 9 Program. Basically, this was a modified version based off of a 2018 study that originally described nine stretching and nine strengthening exercises. So the intention of this program is to complete just nine exercises and stretches combined to complete the warm-up during that period of their workout under the supervision of their coaches. So the exercises include wrist, elbow, shoulder, thoracic spine, some lower extremity stretches, and different mobilizations. Study really does a great job of visualizing these images as well and showing the movements that they're making the athletes go through. So during the study, proper performance of these exercises were tracked at three different time points over a calendar year, and teams were also assessed every four months for clinical and ultrasound assessments from medical physicians, looking for elbow and shoulder stresses with an assortment of tests and imaging with the ultrasound. So the study primarily looked at incidence of elbow and shoulder injuries during these follow-ups. They also looked at performance-related factors such as ball speed. So one of the things that they were finding from this study that they were trying to do is improve compliance. The study from 2018 had a relatively low level of compliance. Originally, they were with the full 18 exercises of nine stretching and nine strengthening exercises. There's only about a 57.4% compliance. This study found that there was a compliance of 73.4%, which is actually really astounding when you consider compliance across other type of injury prevention programs that are out there. What they found was that there was a significant reduction in injuries of 48.5% lower in intervention groups. And this percentage is actually fitting into a lot of the percentages that we're seeing with these new type of injury prevention programs, not just for throwers in these studies, but other lower extremity programs that are out there as well. So what they're trying to conclude out of this is that they're only doing nine of these exercises that they found only takes about 10 minutes or less to complete and required very minimal instruction to be able to do that with. The thing I found just interesting with this is, like I said, with the compliance rate, it was just so incredibly high with this group. And it's almost as if they kind of learned from some mistakes they had in the 2018 group where they were like, okay, maybe this is too many exercises and we might want to simplify this a little bit. But they even went as far as to making sure that these were supervised by the coaches. The athletes had journals to document their compliance with it. And they were even afterwards able to rank different groups of the type of compliance that they had. Were they doing it more than once a week, just once a week, or a little less than once a week, maybe doing it once every two weeks or so? 
And even with that lower rate, they still had a rate of decreased injury compared to the control group. So really kind of an astounding take on working with younger athletes, and especially at such a young age from ages 9 to 11 in this group. So what were your guys' takes from this article and uh, how you felt about um, kind of that age group and the number of athletes that were able to be compliant with this type of workout program? I was impressed with this in the sense that it seemed like such a fairly simple exercise program. And I'd be curious at your take as a physical therapist and athletic trainer. I mean, there was two massage exercises, a few stretches, just holding the stretch for 10 seconds. And then it was a 10 repetition for the the mobility slash kind of body weight exercises. It was, I was kind of impressed just looking at this kind of really minimal program and the significant reduction in the amount of injuries. I mean, almost in half in this intervention group, just with a couple simple things. And, you know, I look at it in terms of just seeing so many throwers at this age in my office and you know, just asking most of these kids, well, do you do any sort of arm care type programs or do you do any kind of injury prevention type programs? And almost universally, the answer is no. I, I think if we if we have a program like this that we can show such a significant reduction in shoulder or elbow issues and and it, in that age group, I, I think we can get a bunch of youth coaches to buy into something this simple because, you know, we know when we add these long programs in here, it's just the buy-in is not that great because the kids don't find it interesting and but if we can do some of these things and it does make a difference, I think that would be awesome. I think that's a great comment, Mark. From our perspective, we kind of see these all the time because we see all the kids with problems. The interesting thing, though, is if you look at the relative risk, the decrease is dramatic, like almost half, right? It's a it's a big change. But the risk for any individual athlete or any individual team still is is pretty small. I think it was like three in a thousand athletic exposures compared to one and a half or something like that. So for that individual coach, that might mean one kid having having pain and compared to a two that might normally. And that's where I think it's still important to get coaches and parents to buy into these things because you don't know this is this is good in the short term and this probably means something important in the long term too, that hopefully by avoiding pain these younger years and having this better system, they may be protected from injury in the longer term as well, if they can keep these things up. But that's always the challenge is, is it worth it for that coach or that team to do it if it's still kind of uncommon? I think the other interesting part here is the difference here between the United States with pediatric patients and Japan. Japan utilizes a lot of ultrasound. We had a traveling fellowship to Japan through AMSSM, and that was one of the big take-home points is that the, the surgeons there especially are doing a lot of ultrasound. We were actually just talking about this as just pediatric sports physicians in general at our AMSSM meeting and the utilization of ultrasound. We don't use it very much. And I'm always curious to see, you know, how much can we really truly assess these bone injuries? I mean, when I get x-rays on these patients, which is our typical standard looking for little league elbow or little league shoulder, and we do a comparison to the other side, it usually you can tell a difference there. You know, obviously I'm not skilled in ultrasound personally, so I, I don't know of how well you can tell that difference as easily on ultrasound. But, you know, again, I, I think it's certainly something interesting to look at of whether or not ultrasound may be helpful as a imaging modality for looking at this for our pediatric age patients. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think we're finding ultrasound to be more and more useful in more and more settings, but it really comes down to having someone in your setting who's an expert and is used to using it all over the body. There's certainly major advantages to its use, and that's a, a great example of how different things can be in another country. 
And David, just your thoughts, because I'm curious, again, what you think about this as a, as a physical therapist and athletic trainer, just the exercise program in general. I mean, do you think that what they posed is, is a reasonable thing to look at, especially someone who works with throwers all the time? Yeah, I definitely think it's reasonable. It doesn't fit out of the realm of unreasonable. And I think just speaking on things that you guys have both brought up is that it's that buy-in that you get. And I think with my experiences and working not just with throwing athletes, but working with athletes in general and, and having these discussions with coaches and parents about what is your warm-up routine and what types of things you do. And it's amazing kind of getting the different responses from parents of kids that are at similar age, that there really isn't a consistency in what's done. And you know, I just think back to sports in general, like you think back to the sports of where you do more of a team warm-up versus an individualized warm-up. And baseball is one of those sports where there really isn't a lot of team warm-up that you do ahead of time of doing things just to get the body moving. And if anything, is it something where it's just getting your mind put in the position of, okay, I'm going to make sure my body's moving in this certain way and have an understanding of that's the right way for it to do that rather than just coming in cold and you know maybe showing up late for practice or a game and just getting in there, getting a few warm-up throws in and you know being pushed through to try to perform in your sport. I wouldn't say there's anything special about any of these exercises. You might find that you took the other nine exercises that they didn't do from the original study in 2018, and maybe you'd get the same results. But a lot of the studies that are done on these injury prevention programs find that it could be really just any collection of exercises that are combined in a way and presented in a way that you're instructing them on the correct way to do things. And maybe it's more of a mind over matter type of thing where you're just kind of getting their mind in the right mindset of being like, this is the way my body needs to move. I'm ready for X, Y sport. And I'm ready to kind of make sure that I'm moving the right way. That's a great comment about the author should be applauded for keeping it simple. You mean showing that something simple works versus something complex is certainly gives us the ability to apply this much more easily and get this implemented compared to sticking to something that's got 20 exercises and maybe not all of them are needed. So I think that's a, a definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's the the problem with the throwing 10 exercise program, right? You know, it's it's called the throwing 10, but there's what, 15, 20 exercises, right? Yeah, it's like 17 or 18. And yeah, I, so. I, I, when I give that to patients, I split it up. I tell them you have an A day and a B day. And I, I don't have them do all 18 exercises in one day because after practicing for so many years, I started to look at it and been like, wow, this is really unreasonable. Like I shouldn't be asking you to do this many things when you have so many other things in your life going on right now. And it takes a lot of time to get to those exercises. So I, I myself have, have split up exercises that I give to patients and even going so far to being like, well, let's just focus on these specific areas where you have your weaknesses to individualize it more. And then adding some leg and core stuff, which this program does exactly that. It focuses on thoracic and lumbar mobility and leg mobility and involving orienting of going into a lunge and how you'd coordinate your trunk and not even really using your arms that much. So it might be just kind of like a genius way of saying, hey, you need to move in these areas too. And you need to make sure that's functioning so you don't overwork your arm. Yeah, it's, I think that's one of the the key points that I saw just, you know, as I was looking at the pictures of these particular exercises. And one thing that we talk about so much in, in pediatric sports medicine is that that kids have a lack of basic knowledge of movement skills. I mean, it, they're movement deficient. I mean, we think about two decades ago, three decades ago, where there was so much free play and kids were improvising and basically training themselves. And now we've narrowed our sports programs to these very structured programs and kids don't have a lot of the fundamental basic movement skills. And, and some of these things here are just training your body to have those basic movements you'll do in baseball 
as a thrower. And I think it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense of just developing that, that muscle sense and those simple movements rather than trying to integrate it all into this is, I'm just going to go throw and throw and throw some more. And we're going to teach you the wrong way of doing it. We got to get your body ready to have that movement skill to begin with. Any last uh, take on points or comments from either of you on this particular study? Yeah, the one thing I was thinking along with this is they did have a discussion at the beginning of saying, were you a pitcher or other position? And I'd really like to know from this study if they were able to target on one specific position, because in my experiences, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Halstead, but a lot of the injuries we are seeing are from primarily high number of throw positions, which would be a lot of pitchers and catchers, even distance positions like outfield or third base. But I'd really like to know if they were able to specify different prevention of injuries that are based on the position they primarily play. It'd be really good to know if maybe the injuries were possibly even diluted a little bit just because they're going across all positions together and they're not just focusing on pitchers or catchers or third base. The other thing going along with that too is just because there's this you know, increased amount of play with baseball players and stuff like that, which is usually always the focus, but can a program like this work for softball players? And that could be a really great follow-up study just because sometimes position play with softball, especially softball pitchers, requires such different movement. Could this be helpful in helping reduce injuries with softball athletes as well? Yeah, I think this is a great first step. We need more studies like this done in the U.S. to see if we can replicate this and similar to other injury prevention programs, start to implement this more broadly. And I think what we've seen in the research is that Japan seems to be way ahead of us in these injury prevention programs and our youth baseball players by far. So finally, we're going to touch on a study published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine in 2020 that came from the FACS Multicenter Study Group. And FACS stands for Function After Adolescent Clavicle Trauma and Surgery. And the study's titled Descriptive Epidemiology of Adolescent Clavicle Fractures Results from the FACS Perspective Multicenter Cohort Study. Jeff, you were involved with this study. Before we get into the details of it, talk to our listeners a little bit about the FACS Multicenter Research Group and what the goals are of this group, and should we be expecting more publications from this group, and then go ahead and take us through the study. All right, thanks, Mark. So the FACS study group really came about after noticing how many adolescent patients with clavicle fractures were undergoing surgery. And in many cases, we don't have much evidence to make those decisions on the adult side, over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a major paradigm shift in the treatment of clavicle fractures with high levels of evidence, multiple RCTs that have really pushed surgery as the optimal treatment in the adult patient. And many of the key issues with surgery that we avoid are healing issues, non-unions or lack of healing of the bone. But those issues just don't happen in kids. So unfortunately, with, with little attention paid to the adolescent patient, who's maybe the most common clavicle fracture, we start to treat pediatric and adolescent patients like adults. And that's really led to dramatic increases. Some studies showing going from kind of like 1% of all clavicle fractures to 25 or 30%. So maybe major increases in surgery. So facts came about to really address that gap in the knowledge. It's headed out of Boston Children's Hospital by Ben Hayworth. It's now at eight sites across the U.S. We've been part of facts since its early days. Faction initial efforts are focusing on multi-center prospective cohorts, which has really become the model in orthopedic surgery for high-level 
generalizable evidence. Treatments dictated by the clinician, so this is not a randomized study at this point. And then these patients are followed over time, trying to follow as many of the clavicle fractures at a given site from the non-displaced ones to the more severe ones, not just those that a surgeon might see. Great. Well, kind of take us through the study here as far as what you guys were looking at and what you guys found. Yeah, this current study maybe isn't the most exciting to read, but really sets the stage for powerful future studies on outcomes. This article does become our kind of best resource that we can understand the epidemiology of this injury. Compared to a single center study, by getting all these sites across the U.S., we have broad, generalizable data. We looked at, in this cohort, 545 clavicle fractures enrolled over about two-and-a-half-year study period. These are 10 to 18-year-olds with fractures of the shaft of the clavicle, so not distal injuries. All of these are medial to the coracoid. Gives us a variety of numbers to kind of quote. 79% of these fractures were males. 9% had had a prior clavicle fracture on the same side, 56% non-dominant extremity, about two-thirds happening in sports. Football was the most common sport, followed by soccer. In the article, we group football and rugby as sort of those collision sports. Just given the numbers of athletes, the vast majority of those are are football fractures. The fractures were assessed radiographically in a couple of ways. Classification, the AO classification is sort of classic, relatively simple, nine-group classification, but we don't commonly use use it clinically because we'd much rather just tell what we see than think of what of those nine categories it is. But it goes from three simple fractures to six kind of higher energy comminuted types. We wanted to characterize what these fractures were from simple to more complex. Shortening is always the uh, big debate in uh, clavicles. So shortening can be measured in two ways, as shown in figure one in this article. Most clavicle fractures are an oblique plane of the fracture, so that the the way you measure it can really influence your measurement. So end-to-end shortening is shown in figure 1A, is simple sort of the two ends that are sticking past each other the most, while this probably overestimates true displacement in an oblique fracture. The better way is probably cortex-to-cortex measurements. That's thinking about how these puzzle pieces fit together to get a more accurate measure. We've published separately in this showing the reliability of that measurement. In this study, it was the difference between measuring almost 22 millimeters of shortening versus 12 millimeters of shortening. So almost a centimeter difference depending how you measure it. And that's a problem with our literature as well. Non-displaced clavicle fractures, not much drama there. I don't think there's any debate about how to treat those. The debate comes in the completely displaced. So fractures where the two ends of the bone aren't touching, that made up about 54% of this current study. One third of those patients in this timing and cohort underwent surgery. So unfortunately, this study doesn't yet help us understand who might need surgery versus non-surgical treatment. But there's a lot of research coming down the pipeline from this same cohort followed out over time. One of the main challenges you'll see in future studies is ensuring that we're comparing apples to apples. So we want to be comparing fractures that are truly similar. So as you can see in the numbers, more severe fractures tend to get surgery while milder ones didn't get surgery. So you can't quite compare those directly without having some means of teasing out fractures that are the same. So that's one of the future challenges 
And I think you'll see the fact group and outcomes of this group are well represented at a lot of upcoming meetings, POSNA, the OTA, all those things that there's really interesting data coming down the pipeline that really questions some of the ways we make decisions in this population and I think are changing the practice of many clinicians. And Jeff, is this a study that you guys are still actively enrolling patients in, or is this your cohort now that you have off of this study that was published? Yeah, so we're still actively enrolling more severe fractures to really look at some shorter term time points. The early phase of the study focuses on one-year time points for an athlete who's hoping to get back into sports quickly. I think outcomes like three months and six months are really important because if they're not doing well then and eventually they're good at a year, they're still not very happy. So uh, we're still looking at more severe fractures with these time points and Who knows what the future will bring? Potentially randomized trial, those kind of things are are potentially in play. But right now we're really figuring out where is that debate? What fracture is the most controversial where we can't really tell which is better? Because I think our data will tell us many of the subgroups, uh, what is the ideal treatment? And I was curious, you made the comment about the collision sports, the football and rugby you know, you guys lump those together and, and just the end here is 137 were from football or rugby and then 104 in soccer. I'm kind of curious, actually, if you removed or you separated football and rugby, would soccer actually be the number one sport for clavicle fractures? I certainly see a high number of those. I mean, obviously, you, when you look at football and rugby, they are going to be a little bit more seasonal, whereas soccer, we tend to see that as a year round sport. So just from probably numbers of exposures potentially to clavicle fractures, soccer is going to have the lead there. So I probably, if you looked at it by athletic exposure, it's probably not as great, but I'm just kind of curious what you thought. Yeah, I think rugby was pretty uncommon. I'm not exactly sure why we ended up grouping these. It confuses it a little bit. I bet if you looked at St. Louis, soccer would probably be the most common injury, but it's so regional that I don't think as many places are maybe as soccer crazed as St. Louis. Soccer also gets the males and the females involved compared to something like football. But per exposure, certainly football is the highest risk. David, I'm kind of curious how many patients you wind up seeing in physical therapy for like post-clavicle fracture. I don't tend to refer too many to physical therapy afterwards because it seems like functionally most of these kids, especially with the non-displaced ones, tend to do pretty well. But I'm always a little curious because when I see them at that first visit and I check their cuff strength and compare it to the other side, it's always diminished. And so I'm always kind of curious, dude, should I really be sending them to do some shoulder strengthening afterwards just from from having the fracture? I'm kind of curious how many you see. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the main factor that goes into a lot of physicians, if, if I read up on the referral or if I'm with the electronic medical record, being able to look up like physician notes and see what what their conversation is with that patient. It's usually some type of loss of function or like you mentioned of like a loss of strength that's, you know, significantly reduced and they're needing to get back to an activity, especially if that fracture is on their dominant arm and they're involved in some type of activity or sport that requires use of that arm. I will say I do see more of that often with either more of, don't want to call it a simple fracture, but a less displaced fracture or more of a surgically repaired fracture that will usually follow up with these athletes. I have had experiences working with some athletes that weren't necessarily organized team sports, but skateboarding injuries, more of the extreme sports like snowboarding, skiing, and things like that, and have been able to work with them because of a overall loss of mobility. Because we know if, as the arm is going overhead, 
there is movement in the clavicle. Of, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's upwards of like even like 40 to 50 degrees of rotation that the clavicle has to do. So if that isn't in the right anatomical position, that's going to really have a big impact on it. So I'm kind of curious as Dr. Neppel with your group and things that you're looking at, are there certain objective measures or patient reported outcome measures that you guys are looking at with this study to kind of determine are the outcomes better for surgical versus non-surgical patients that you're seeing? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And this certainly does come down to these fractures are all going to heal. So what the patient says is really the most important. So we're usually utilizing standard PROs that are well validated. You I mean, I think clinically we see clavicles with surgery, without surgery, eventually all of them are really doing just fine. That even overhead athletes think that some of these things would really throw it off, that it's just we don't see a lot of kids coming in with symptomatic malunions where the bone is healed, not in an anatomic position, and it's causing them problems. Some of the literature has suggested in the adolescent that those rates are pretty high. I think the work coming out of facts shows we don't see that if we look at it prospectively. And that's always the bias. These retrospective single center studies can have a lot of things at play that might influence the outcomes compared to sort of higher level evidence, prospective studies that limit bias, I think are certainly important. So it's somewhat amazing that a displaced clavicle that heals in a shortened position doesn't give throwers problem. Certainly in some cases it might, but that's what we need to know more in the future is teasing out the right patients because function seems to be pretty good. To be honest, one thing I now focus on more maybe than in the past is the is the cosmetic appearance. How prominent is the fracture? Does their uh, shoulder really look sort of foreshortened? In younger kids, I think there's definitely remodeling potential as we're getting to 16, 17, 18. Maybe that remodeling potential's a lot less. For females, the location of that prominence can sometimes be even more bothersome. So cosmesis, I think, is starting to drive some of these things that they're going to trade a bump for a scar. And many patients are just fine with the bump. But in certain more displaced ones, I think they do like the appearance better after it's put back together. It's interesting, you know, having done residency in the late 90s and training with orthopods then and also my sports medicine colleagues, it used to be the the adage was for, for pediatric clavicle fractures, as long as both ends of the clavicle were in the same state, we expected them to heal fine. And then over the last two decades, we've seen this switch, like you kind of mentioned, tending towards certain fractures more treated surgically. You know, you guys in your study showed what we typically kind of describe as usually if there's two centimeters of shortening, that oftentimes tends to be where people get pushed more towards surgery. And that was kind of what it looked like it panned out in your study. You had 20 millimeters for the non-op, so two centimeters, and then 25.3 millimeters shortening was for the operative group. So I'm kind of curious your your kind of thought process in that, Jeff, and how you tackle someone in, in your practice. Yeah, fortunately, there's a nice amount of overlap in those groups. So there's plenty of fractures above 20 that were managed conservatively. To do surgery on something less than 20 is a little questionable. That probably isn't very common. So I think it's it's a nice situation with practice variability. The number 20, I think, is not super strongly supported in the literature. It goes back to the adult side. More severe displacement increases the risk of definitely non-union. Again, that doesn't happen in kids, so let's throw that out. There's some association with malunion, but I think 
as we'll see with future fact study, I think the risk of malleon is still very low so that we don't see many kids coming in a year later to have their clavicle rebroken and fixed again after non-surgical treatment. So I think this study and the coming literature actually makes it, we can give parents more evidence. It still makes it hard to make the decisions in that one that's 22 or 25 millimeters short, those more severe fractures. But I think the use of a simple number is going to go by the wayside soon. Great. Well, any last comments as we wrap things up from our research review today for this study or just in general from either David or Jeff? Thanks. Great three studies, I think, to highlight. And, and as in most research, uh, they only bring up more need for uh, future research. But I think so much more research is happening in pediatric sports that I think there are a lot of people tackling these questions. So I think as the years go on, we'll have much better evidence for our patients. Absolutely. I think evidence is key in getting that information out to, as we all know, dealing with our young athletes, we also have to work with their parents and keep them informed as well. So I'm hoping a lot of these studies lead to better education being able to provide that to patients and families so that they can make the best informed decisions for their young athletes. I think that's the cool thing following up on uh, Jeff's comment. I think that's with any research that we do. I don't think there's ever going to be the research that's going to be the end of all research. It's always the cool thing about science. We get more information, more data on stuff, and we ask uh, extra questions. And that's always the important part is, is asking those extra questions and not just leaving it hang there. I'd like to thank both Jeff and David today for their takes on each of these studies today. We will have links, as we always do, to the studies in our show notes for you. So you can link to the PubMed link of the article. And as a little preview, what's coming up in May for the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, um, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we are going to have a series focused on all things mental health and athletes. I'm really excited about this series. We've got some great guests. I'm actually going to have my son on one of the podcast episodes uh, talking about his struggles that he had going through an injury from sports and how that affected him and, and still affects him to some extent today. So that I'm looking forward to that and talking with him and having him share his story with with all of you. Please follow us on Twitter at PedSportsPod and subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast streaming platform so you never miss an episode when it's released. We appreciate your feedback and your five-star reviews, and we want to thank S.J. Hendricks for the review of our podcast. And it said, this research-based podcast is loaded with clinically relevant information. The guests share studies and break down the information into an easily digestible fashion. The host does a great job asking the guests questions and providing recap highlights to each discussion. Thank you for providing a free resource to those of us who work in pediatric sports medicine. As an athletic trainer, it's not easy to find extra time to review research, but the ability to listen into the podcast format allows me to stay up to date on best practices. Thank you. And thank you for the review. And thank you for listening. Leave us feedback and we look forward to having your review featured on a future episode. You can also check us out at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for another research review. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.